Why talk about Mozart? Well, I wanted to put together a series uh, for the Concert Association where some of the composers who get the most play on the world airwaves would get some kind of uh, program just to talk about what makes them extraordinary, what makes them distinct. And um, I'm a composer, and like millions of composers who are um, 200 years ago or now, for some reason, Mozart is one of those people that we think, how did he do what he did? And, and I want to try to convey to you some of what makes Mozart uh, fascinating, because um, we don't really know how the mind processes music. We don't know why uh, some people remember tunes more easily than others. But certainly, uh, without saying whether or not you like someone's music, there are composers who clearly have a facility. They have an ability to remember music, to create music, and um, to absorb other people's music and uh, synthesize it into their own compositions. And probably, one would have to say, just um, from, a, from a, a statistical standpoint, that, that Mozart is one of the musical minds in history that was able to do that uh, more than anybody else. Well, why do we say that? Um, anecdotally, and I'm sure some of these stories are familiar, a child who is six years old and listens to string quartets in his home and says, may I play the violin part, and gets up and plays it perfectly because he's just heard it a few times, it obviously has a tremendous ear. Um, a young person who hears a work that the church won't release the music to because it's so sacred and after two hearings he can write it all down, obviously has a tremendous memory. And a person who can write to his sister, I'm sorry my handwriting was sloppy while I was writing you the <coughs> prelude because I was composing the fugue in my head as I wrote it down for you. <laughs> obviously, you know, he, he, he lived in a world where um, notes and music and harmony all came very naturally to him. But it's interesting because uh, Mozart had very little desire to innovate. He inherited the same set of harmonies that he composed in. Um, if you're opera lovers and, and you hear this four-note chord, you probably think, oh, Wagner, Tristan and Isolde. There's no Mozart chord. If you hear this, you think, oh, it's the Stravinsky chord. It's the Rite of Spring. But Mozart took the chords that he was given and was perfectly content with them. I call this talk uh, the semantics of music because Mozart somehow uh, stayed within a harmonic language that is very familiar to all of us and developed ways of using that specific language to express things that other composers weren't able to express. Mozart was not a political or diplomatic person. He liked to make fun of other people, bluntly. And uh, he, he particularly liked to make fun of other composers who he didn't think were as good as he was. Now, he, he may or may not have been correct, but he was never admitted into the Society of Composers in Vienna, which had 132 other members, because he was just such an obnoxious guy. And he, um, he made no secret of this. He even wrote a piece called The Musical Joke, Ein Musikalischer Spaß. 
And part of the musical joke is, this is the way most other people compose. And the piece starts like this. Especially if you have to sit through it, right? Uh, nothing, nothing harmonic changes. And yet, Mozart can use the same three chords, the tonic, the subdominant, and the dominant. And uh, when he was 18 years old, he wrote this uh, piano concerto where the orchestra comes in. The piano soloist, who of course was Mozart. Everything is a variation or a contrast to what came before. So first you have the orchestra saying something loud, bum, ba-da-bum, bum, bum, and then the piano answers quietly, but the orchestra insists. So right away, Mozart has two characters having a conversation. Now, the first character is just spelling out an E-flat major chord, but Mozart thinks that's good because then when I, as the piano soloist, come in, I can create filigree and I can make something that is in opposition to that. And then the second time I do it, of course, it has more variation. So Mozart somehow took those same simple chords and created something much more interesting. But Mozart wasn't content with just three chords. I want to say that. Um, there was a turning point in Mozart's life because he loved counterpoint. And forgive me if this gets technical for a moment, but um, if a melody could stand on its own and another melody that could stand on its own are happening at the same time and they fit together, that's two-part counterpoint. The great master of counterpoint was Johann Sebastian Bach. And nobody knew Bach's music when Mozart was a young man. The vast majority of his music was in one church in Germany. And when Mozart was in his 20s, he had the good fortune to be in this church. And the organist said, would you like to see what I have? And uh, Mozart suddenly found himself in the presence of another musical genius and spent the next 12 hours just reading through manuscript after manuscript after manuscript, suddenly Mozart's music at this point in his early 20s becomes much more chromatic and much more contrapuntal. Okay, um, forgive me, I know I'm using words that might not mean anything at all. Um, when, when you hear most music, it's in a tonal key, whether it's music written in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, or pop music, it's in a key. And uh, of course, there's contemporary music, which ventures away from being in a key. But even music that is composed very strongly in a key center, like Bach and Mozart and Beethoven, ventures away from it. And of course, the interest for the composer was, how far can we venture away from it? 
So Mozart had been in Paris, and he'd heard A vous dirige maman, which is a folk song that we know as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And he wrote some virtuoso piano variations on it because that was something he would play at his concerts. these Bach manuscripts, and so by the eighth variation, he writes something like this. That's three-part counterpoint, right? Now. Do you remember that this is Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? No. I <laughs> other great love was opera. You know, there's 41 symphonies and 20 piano sonatas and 27 piano concertos and masses and you name it, he wrote it. But his favorite thing was opera. And he started writing opera when he was 12 years old. In fact, when he was 12, he wrote two operas. Well, they were short operas, but still, they were operas. And by the time Mozart was not quite 36, when he died, he'd written 27 operas, depending how you count them. Um, so he loved putting the opera idea of <laughs> characters in conflict into music, even when it wasn't opera. So that piano concerto I played you. There's like two characters already. He developed this in life so that suddenly the um, the, the first character would respond again, but not with the same thing they said the first time as it is in that pi piano concerto, like uh, in the Jupiter Symphony. And then that first character says, So you can actually hear a dialogue. If you put the first person's statements next to each other, But by alternating them, he creates opera, even in a symphony. Uh, Mozart got commission after commission to write operas. And when he was 14, he wrote an opera called Mitridate, which some of you <laughs> had the chance to see uh, at the Santa Fe Opera a few years ago. And as a result of that, he was commissioned to write a second opera for Carnival. And this opera was called Lucio Silla. So he matured a lot. He was only 14 when he wrote Mitridate. He was almost 16 when he wrote Lucio Sina. And uh, he had not only figured more out about the human voice, but also about the orchestra and how to use the orchestra more effectively. And he figured out more about how to make drama happen, still using very simple chords and the, the rhythms um, that, that were traditional at the time. So how did he make things different? He used two tools that you're going to hear, and, and I'm going to have a real singer up here in a minute, so be patient. Um, one is the passing note, all right? If a note is right in the chord that you're playing, then um, it's a harmonic note. But if it's not, like um, if, if one of those composers who'd written... Remember that. If they'd written this piano concerto, they might have written... 
the good composer had written it. Give us some real fun. <laughs> interests carry on much further than the simple harmonic notes. So now, I have the great pleasure of introducing a friend of mine and a great singer, Robert Crow, who lives in Berlin, but he's in Santa Fe. He's going to sing for you this evening. He's singing uh, Friday at the Presbyterian Church on Grant Street at 5.30, and he's singing in Albuquerque on Sunday. Um, we first worked together at Lake George in 1997 because he sang Oberon in Britain's Midsummer Night's Dream. And uh, to create the role of the king of the fairies, Britain wanted a countertenor, a man who sings with a higher voice. But Rob is actually more than a countertenor. He is a true male soprano. And it's exciting for you to get the chance to hear him because the great opera stars in Mozart's day were castrati. They were men who had had their balls cut off before they reached puberty and their parents got $50, and the Catholic Church thought this was wonderful because they didn't have to have any women in the choir. So it was, it was a good arrangement all around. And needless to say, there are no strati today. So the alternatives for people who want to sing this music is you have a woman sing it, or you find a countertenor, or you get extremely lucky, and you have Rob Crow, and you have a real male soprano. So I think you're going to hear the closest thing to what you could hear today with a live singer. Uh, Rob is going to sing us the aria A Se Amorir from Lucio Silla. And you can listen for all the passing tones that Mozart uses to create so much more emotional and melodic interest. Okay? Rob.
Mozart was working in Italy because, as you notice, the opera was in Italian, even though Mozart's native tongue is German. And if you wanted to write opera in those days, it had to be Italian. Mozart dreamed of writing German opera, and he ultimately got to write a few. However, uh, the trick of writing operas was to take the um, star singers of the day and write the best vehicles for them. And the star castrati were all Italian. It even um, varied from city to city, from province to province, because the Catholic Church was very eager to hire castrati, but they said that it was against Catholic law to castrate. It wasn't against the law, however, to hire people who had already been castrated. <laughs> so <laughs> they worked this system. And uh, depending whether or not a certain part of Italy was a papal state, um, castrati would sing only the young men parts, or uh, in the papal states, they would also sing the women's parts uh, in the way that Shakespeare's plays you know, had boys playing the parts of, of women. So uh, it's kind of like Italian politics now. You know, the, the, the government changes and then the currency changes and the arts change. Everything happens quickly. So it was constantly changing and Mozart was uh, in this swarm of intrigue. But he did know how to write for those uh, rock star voices. And may I tell you that operas in those days were a lot longer than they are now. <laughs> uh, and people had um, boxes where they could eat and gamble and even sleep. I mean, the good boxes had beds in them. So um, opera was an all-night affair. And uh, you, you really didn't, and of course the stage was not any more lit than the hall. Everything was uniformly lit. So um, when the, the famous person came on stage, suddenly everything would be quiet for five minutes and they would get to do their piece. And then you know the chorus would come on and then everybody would go back to gambling and eating. And, but gambling is a great way to pay for opera. I mean, think about this, because we have a lot of trouble nowadays. Think, think what we could do. Um, Mozart was fortunate, too, that later on he found better librettists. Uh, the, the books, the, the scripts that he wrote from were these standardized Italian plots that had to do with the fortunes of the Roman Empire or the gods. And the fact is that dozens of composers used them. Mozart used what everybody else used. Um, he suddenly came across Lorenzo da Ponte. And there are three operas, if you've heard of all these, The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, and Così fan tutte, where Mozart had the good luck to work with a, a person who was a kindred spirit, another very mischievous person. Who, who liked to create operas about normal people, normal people interacting with each other, and all the foibles that we all have. It, it would be fair to say that most composers, especially opera composers, have uh, personal issues that they work out in their operas. Uh, for example, <laughs> Puccini uh, always writes operas about women who love so much that they sacrifice themselves and die for their love. Now, Puccini never found this in life, but he created it over and over, and, and we go over and over, and everybody loves it. Uh, Verdi had sort of two themes, but, but the main theme in the early part of his career was to write one opera after another about a country being able to become its own homeland again. Well, why? Because Italy wasn't Italy until 1860 or 1870, the Vatican finally joined in. And, and then he chose to write operas about jealousy, because he and his wife had that kind of relationship. But Mozart was obsessed with human fidelity. 
And so all the great Mozart operas, once he could do what he wanted, are about people falling in love and then will they stay true to each other? And how long will they stay true to each other? So Da Ponte, who had about 825 mistresses, was the perfect person <laughs> to write this. And uh, yeah, he, he got chased all over Europe because you know, he'd have an affair with some princess and finally he had to move to New York to get away from it all after Mozart had died and he opened a grocery store. And then he wrote, this is true, this is true. He taught part-time at Columbia, he opened a grocery store and he wrote great memoirs. And you can, you can Google them, it's really fun to read. So Da Ponte wrote these libretti that suddenly talked about how, uh, this was before the French Revolution, how the aristocrats of Europe took advantage of their position to have sex with anybody they wanted, where the poor peasants just had to sort of fend for themselves. And so the marriage of Figaro, which I may tell you Beaumarchais took six years to get past the censor to get on stage in France, uh, Mozart was able to turn into an opera and got it on the stage right away. So it was a huge sensation because most of the people in the audience were, uh, you know, they were, they were regular people. They weren't the aristocrats who were paying for the performance. And they um, identified exactly with what Mozart was doing. Now, he was very clever. Figaro comes out at the end, and he thinks that, um, he thinks that Susanna, Fig Figaro is a servant, and, and he wants to marry another servant named Susanna. Figaro serves the count, Susanna serves the countess. And uh, there's an intrigue that Figaro has cooked up to try to embarrass the count because the count wants to have his droit de seigneur with Susanna before his, her wedding night with Figaro. But um, the plot gets too complicated and Figaro can't follow it anymore. Only, only Susanna can follow it. Certainly nobody in the audience can follow it. And um, at this point, Susanna has tricked Figaro into thinking that she has an assignation with the count. And Figaro comes out and he says to the audience, everybody knows what happens in this situation. And the horns play, ba-da-bump, ba-da-bump, ba-da-bump. Now, in Italian, the word for horns is corni. And the word for being cuckolded by your spouse is corni. So everybody in the audience took this on two levels. One, that, um, that Figaro felt he was being cuckolded. And the orchestra says, da-da-dump, da-da-dump, da-da-dump. And no word has to be said. But it's also like that Woody Allen joke when he says, and so I realized that my girlfriend was doing to this guy exactly what Nixon was doing to the country. And so the whole audience knew that this was a slam uh, against the aristocracy, but because nobody had said a word on stage, just the horn had played, but -bum, ba -bum, ba -bum, he got away with it completely. So this opera is like a turning point. If, if you think that the opera started a little over 400 years ago, and 200 years ago, this marriage of Figaro is suddenly about people and passion and jealousy. And uh, it's not set in Roman antiquity. It was set in a contemporary time. Uh, it, it turned everything upside down. So um, Mozart still was using the harmonic language that uh, he had inherited. But now he's become a mature composer. He's 30. <laughs> so he, he is able, sometimes through a single note, to give us a whole emotional color that he couldn't even do in that aria that he wrote when he was 16 years old. Uh, for example, the countess, who now at the old age of 18, uh, is still married to the count, but he has no interest in her at all anymore. And she sings an aria invoking the gods, and she says, God of love, give me some consolation. I've been abandoned. 
and uh, she sings something like this. Mozart adds something. Well, he had a real singer for one thing, but <laughs> So this one little bassoon comes in on a note that has nothing to do with the chord that the countess is singing, and suddenly the audience is hearing music they've never heard before. It's perfectly logical but it told everybody the depth of that suffering that in conventional harmony would have gone unnoticed. In the same year, Mozart wrote uh, a symphonic expedition, oh, that was a, little, a few years later, but he, he, he loved the idea of playing with uh, notes that seem not to belong but are perfectly harmonically accepted. <coughs> You've probably heard this symphony. Okay. And the last movement goes... So uh, he takes that same thing. That, that probably sounded like acceptable music, but um, it was actually the first 12-tone row that a composer ever wrote because he um, is writing a symphony in G minor. Actually, it's an 11-tone row because he manages to use all the notes that are not G, this is intentional, uh, even within the context of this harmonic language, to show where are we? <laughs> now we could at that point go, but he doesn't do that, he goes. discovered how he can use the harmonic language of the period and yet take us harmonically very far afield. So, um, our son Eric is going to sing a couple of arias from the Marriage of Figaro. And in both of them, you will hear, although they seem perfectly innocent, uh, sudden changes of harmony that take us way far away from the key centers in which these arias are written. And it doesn't really matter uh, whether an audience person knows this consciously and analyzes it in a harmonic way. The fact is that we respond to music, otherwise it wouldn't be here. And um, somehow we know when something is taking us far away from where we began, and when it comes back, uh, we feel a sense of homecoming. It's hard to explain psychologically why that is the case, but I think uh, you'll hear it in this piece. So I told you about the Count and the Countess and their servants, Figaro and Susanna. Uh, the fifth main character in this piece is a 13-year-old page boy, Cherubino, uh, little cherub in Italian. And Cherubino is uh, just like the Count. He's after every woman in the palace, but he's 13. So uh, he can't act on it, but he can sing about it. And he's written a piece. So the first piece Eric's going to sing is actually a piece that uh, Cherubino tells the Countess and Susanna that he has written himself. Uh, um, you know the answer, you hold the key. So Eric is going to perform this uh, aria from The Marriage of Figaro.
Carabino is never performed by a 13-year-old boy. I can't figure that out. <laughs> Obviously, it's perfect. Um, there's always a wonderful 35-year-old mezzo-soprano up there, and um, you know, no one is really fooled. So uh, it, it would be interesting. The story unfolds, and Carabino always is in the wrong place. He's a 13-year-old boy. So the Count has discovered that the Countess is in her boudoir with Susanna, and uh, he can just sense that something has been going on, and indeed it has. They've been dressing Carabino up as a girl so that uh, he can get into places where he couldn't get in normally. And so um, the Count bursts in on all this. Carabino hides in the closet. He's locked in the closet. Susanna uh, somehow is hidden in the room. It's opera. The Count can't see her. Don't ask me. And uh, <laughs> the Count and the Countess leave the room and lock the door from the outside. Um, Count Carabino's trapped in there. So he's always getting into these scrapes. Uh, one time he's, he's hiding um, behind an armchair, and the Count comes into the room to tell Susanna how he wants to go away with her. And then when someone else comes in the room, the Count goes and hides behind the armchair. So Carabino comes and jumps into the armchair, and <laughs> Susanna throws something over him. And then ultimately, he's discovered. But he's always in the wrong place. So um, 
just before this happens, he's, he's singing uh, to Susanna and to the Countess about how every woman that he sees uh, makes his heart flutter, and he's just so interested. And uh, unlike the song that he wrote, which you just heard, that's rather slow and stately, uh, this is actually Carabino's feeling. So Mozart has written it for Carabino uh, to show that state of agitation. So the second aria Eric's going to sing is, I can't give you a good explanation. Okay, this is Carabino's other aria from The Marriage of Figaro. I can't give you a good explanation for the snow and confusing sensation. Every lady see makes me tremble, makes me tremble with pleasure and pain, makes me tremble with pleasure and pain, makes me tremble with pleasure and pain. When love, love, there is really a mention. I am stubborn. Mozart did actually have the opportunity to write for boys. When he had this chance, it was always in a liturgical setting because uh, the church had uh, boy choirs and men choirs. Uh, 
uh, just no women lawyers. So uh, there was actually an occasion when he had the opportunity to write a duet for a castrato, an adult, and a boy soprano. And thanks to Rob, we found this piece. And so I actually have a duet that Rob and Eric can sing for you. So this is something that Mozart wrote when he was about 18 um, from a mass that would have been performed in what city? In Salzburg, okay. Uh, so <laughs> it's funny, Mozart came from Salzburg and it was one of the few cities in Europe that didn't recognize him as a great genius. Uh, <laughs> he struggled to get the archbishop there to, to recognize him, but uh, you know, he, could, he could get commissions in Venice and all over Italy and lots of other places, but Salzburg just saw him as a local kid. So he nevertheless wrote this gorgeous duet for um, male soprano and boy soprano, and we're going to perform it for you. It's Subtuum Presidium.
after Mozart wrote The Marriage of Figaro, he was able to write an opera about the person who embodied free love, Don Giovanni, Don Juan. And throughout the opera, he delights in having music which is masculine juxtaposed with music that is feminine. Um, we hear Don Giovanni trampling over the conventions of his age, and then we hear some fluttering little maiden who succumbs to him. So this um, relationship of the sexes fascinates him. The next opera, Così fan tutte, is all about men and women, will they stay true? And right away the overture starts with uh, a, a male, and then this beautiful woman. And she answers again. Then there's a question mark. Will she or won't she? <laughs> or in German, it would be the same. So, so this entire opera is, is constructed from, from the beginning, where it says, OK, here's the guy, here's the girl, here's the question. And um, in, the, in the finale of this opera, there are actually 30 places, just in the single finale, where, where Mozart writes, Fermata's over rests so that time is suspended and, and, and the, the question is never answered. Uh, then he writes this opera, The Magic Flute, where men and women come together in perfect harmony, but the magic flute is a fairy tale. So uh, <laughs> he, he knows that there's, there's an ongoing question. And then Mozart's final opera is called The Clemency of Titus. Um, Titus is a just Roman emperor, and this opera, uh, although it has jealousy and intrigue, ends very happily, and um, Titus is merciful. Now, in the middle of this piece uh, was the star vehicle, and it was for a castrato, of course. And the castrato is playing the role of the young man Sextus. Sextus is 15 or 16 years old. And he's deeply in love with a woman who says, ah, I'm thrilled that you love me. My heart responds to you as much as you show your devotion to me. And to show that devotion, I need you to commit a murder. <laughs> so Sextus, in his young life, is immediately confronted with this dilemma. And so we're going to finish our program tonight with Rob singing this incredible aria that Sextus sings, Parto Parto. He, he says, I'm going, I'm going to do exactly what you're telling me to do, but first, uh, let me declare my love for you. And then as the piece goes on, it goes from tender to determined, and finally he rushes off uh, prepared to do the deed, which ultimately he never has to do. So here is uh, Parto Parto from the Clemency of Titus. <laughs>
Oh, 